it's the Christmas season, and so as a church, we have been walking through a series called Christmas Carols, and we have been, as you might expect, looking at many of the popular Christmas carols that we sing during this time of year. And we're, we're not preaching the Christmas carols, right? We don't believe that the Holy Spirit inspired Christmas songs. The Holy Spirit inspired Scripture, but rather, we're using these Christmas songs as a jumping off point to reflect on what the Bible says about this particular season and what it is that we remember during this time of year. And there's something kind of curious that's taking place with Christmas carols in our society. We've heard them so many times that they've essentially become background music for us. We, we don't pay attention to what it is that we are saying. We don't pay attention to the theological significance of the words that are playing over the loudspeaker at JCPenney as we're doing last-minute shopping. We just sort of hum along and don't think about it. But when you really do drill down into what these songs say, you find that there's a richness there. I think, for example, of joy to the world. In the third verse, there's this line that says, No more let sin and sorrow reign, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Now, you, you may not have noticed that, hanging out in Starbucks waiting on your coffee, but that is a direct reference to Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. After Adam and Eve introduced sin into the world, God pronounces a curse on Adam and he says, the ground will be cursed because of you and it will bring forth thorns and thistles. The idea being that Adam has rebelled against his creator and now creation is rebelling against Adam. But, but what does this song remind us of? That Christ has come to break that curse. We don't think about that as it plays in the background of our lives. And I would venture to say that we often don't pay attention to the words of the song that we'll be focusing on this morning, uh, Away in a Manger. The origins of the song are a little bit mysterious. For a long time, people believed that it was written by the great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, but most music historians don't think that's the case. It was actually written in Pennsylvania by some German Lutherans, so I guess there's a little bit of a Luther connection. And one of the earliest instances that it appears is in 1887 in a collection of children's hymns called Dainty Songs for Little Lads and Lasses, uh, which, catchy title, I guess. But it gives you an idea of how this song has sort of functioned in our cultural imagination. In many ways, it is seen as a children's song. It's a song for kids to sing. And that's absolutely understandable, right? It's a, it's a really clear and simple presentation of what took place 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem on the night when the Lord Jesus was born. And I wonder, for many of us, what sort of images come into our mind as we hear this song or reflect on the words of this song. I know for me, the first 12 or so years of my life, I attended a private school in the area, a private Christian school. Had a wonderful experience there, received a great sort of foundation in um, the Bible and a Christian worldview. I will admit to you that I got C's and D's in Bible class in elementary school, so my how things have changed since then. But I remember my teachers having posters all over their walls with sort of cartoon depictions of biblical events. And beyond a shadow of a doubt, the most frequent posters were these Precious Moments posters. Has anybody heard of like Precious Moments before? A couple people. So if you haven't heard of it, I've got a picture for you that'll be on the screen. This is the Precious Moments depiction of the nativity. 
So it's cute, kind of looks like a Disney cartoon. Mary and Joseph have uh, sort of like googly cartoon eyes. Um, it, it's, it's a, I think, an appropriate depiction of the birth of Jesus for five, six, seven, eight-year-olds. And I think when we hear away in the manger, this is the image that sort of rests in our mind. And it's certainly not a bad image. Everybody starts here with sort of a child's understanding of what took place in a manger. And we ought to start here. It's appropriate. The problem is not that our understanding of Christmas begins here, but there is a problem if our understanding of the events of Christmas stays there. Because if we don't go a little bit deeper into what it means to say that God became man and laid his head down in a manger, then we're missing out on the richness of what it is that we believe as Christians. And so this morning, I want to frame things a little bit differently for us. I'd like for us to spend some time reflecting on and maybe uh, thinking more deeply about what actually took place in that manger, what it means to say that God became a man and was born in a manger. And I'd like to do that through the lens of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 through 10. And as you're getting there, uh, just a little bit of background information on the book of Hebrews itself. Technically speaking, this portion of Scripture is anonymous. You, you can check me on it. Uh, not even in the Greek do we get a name associated with Hebrews. Nobody says, hey, my name's Steve, and I'm writing the letter. What the earliest Christians believed was that it was probably Paul who wrote Hebrews. Um, but I think that's maybe a little bit questionable because when you look at everything else Paul wrote, uh, it doesn't sound anything like Paul. There's, there's just not a lot of overlap in the grammar. And so an, another theory, which I actually think is, is interesting and maybe possible, is that this was written by Apollos. And you might be familiar with Apollos. He was uh, one of Paul's traveling companions. He was an associate of the apostles, was clearly influential in the early church. The truth is we just don't really know. The book of Hebrews is also unique in the New Testament in that it doesn't really look like a traditional letter. This has led some people to think that it might actually be the transcript of an early sermon in the church. A couple years ago, a friend of mine who lives in Philadelphia, his pastor, memorized the entire book of Hebrews, so you know that he did not have young children at home uh, because he had time to do that. He memorized, or maybe he did, and he's just like a superhuman, um, but he memorized the entire book of Hebrews, and there was one Sunday that rather than preaching a sermon like I'm doing now, he just stood up and he preached Hebrews front to back. And it was really, really a powerful thing to listen to, and, and it begins to make sense why um, some people, at least some scholars, believe this was an early Christian sermon. But what we can tell from Hebrews is that the recipients were people who were steeped in uh, Jewish theology. They had a deep understanding of the Old Testament, and they were being tempted under persecution to go from Christianity back to Judaism because that was a little bit more culturally acceptable. And so the author of Hebrews spends a great majority of this letter um, showing how the signs and symbols in the Old Testament, things like the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system, the temple, Abraham, all these figures that were revered in Jewish theology and in Christian theology, he, he shows how they were signposts that were meant to point us to Jesus. They were almost like the trailer for the movie itself. And to go back to those things and to leave behind Christ was to, to essentially go back to the trailer when the movie has finally been released. 
You know, in the last week or so, uh, the newest Marvel movie, the newest Spider-Man movie has come out, and I'm going to break a couple people's hearts in here and say I'm not like a Marvel super fan. Um, I've seen almost every Marvel movie, but I just don't really care until it's for free on a plane. Uh, but I will say, the exception is Spider-Man. Like, I love Spider-Man. Uh, and it is a little weird to me that the people who beat me up in high school for liking comic books now go watch Spider-Man opening night. Uh, it's, it is in some way sort of like my, my revenge, right? Ha, you, I told you it was cool as you were pummeling my face in high school. Um, I'm not cynical at all about that. Um, but uh, here's what's been so interesting about this latest Spider-Man movie is that it has broken all sorts of records. The trailer alone shattered records on YouTube. And the last I heard with the, the movie, as it's just been released this week, is that um, it... I think it's actually the best performing movie since the pandemic. It's something that, that people are really, really excited about. And while I'm not a Marvel super fan, I can't imagine anybody who cares about Marvel movies, now that this movie is out, going, I would rather just watch the trailer. I'm going to stay home. I'm going to watch the YouTube trailer. Trailer was good enough for me. You guys can go watch the movie. That's fine. I'm going to stick with the trailer. And that's kind of the, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making. It's not that these things in the Old Testament are bad. They're good. St. Paul says the law is good, but it's meant to point you to Jesus. It's not meant to terminate on itself, but to propel you forward to the main event, which is Christ himself. And the author of Hebrews spends a lot of time talking about how that works with the sacrificial system. If, uh, if you're new to church, not familiar with this, for the, the people of Israel, whenever they broke God's law, the way that they could be made right with God, the way they could be forgiven for their sins was through a system of sacrifices that God gave them in the law. And uh, the problem with the sacrificial system was that it worked for the sin for which the sacrifice was offered. And so if you break one of God's commandments, there's uh, legislation about what you need to offer as a sacrifice in the temple or at the tabernacle and your sins will be taken away. Unfortunately, if you sin again, you have to repeat the process. And so you find in the Old Testament there is an endless stream of sacrifices, an endless stream of blood. And the author of Hebrews just makes this point. The blood of animals can never permanently take away sin. It's impossible, he says in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. It can't permanently fix the human problem. And with that, the author of Hebrews gets into our text for the morning. So let me read it for us. It says this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you've taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said the above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. So often when we come to this Christmas season, a portion of scripture that gets uh, repeated frequently in church is John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And you go a little bit further in chapter 1, and you read these incredible words. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's this reality that we celebrate that God became man in the person of Jesus, the 
incarnation. But what I fear in church is that while we affirm that that's true, we don't ever really spend time reflecting on why it was necessary. We don't spend enough time thinking about why God had to become a human being in order to save us. Why couldn't it have come another way? The great early church theologian Anselm of Canterbury uh, wrote a book about it. He called it Curdeus Homo in the Latin, which means why the God-man. Why did God have to become man? I want to offer you two answers to that question as we reflect on what took place in the manger. The, The book of Hebrews, the passage we just read, says that God did not desire sacrifices or offerings, not the blood of bulls or goats, which could never permanently take away sin, but a body you have prepared for me. Why is it that Jesus needed to be fully human, to take a human body? Well, it comes back to this common Christian term, sin. And so often when when we discuss sin, we think of it as choices that we make, things we've done, things we've left undone, which violate God's commandments and desecrate God's world. And that's absolutely true. But the early church didn't just talk about sin as bad choices. They referred to sin as corruption, as something that spread. They thought of sin not just as the bad choices, but as something like gangrene or cancer or a virus that spreads and corrupts and works its way through people and societies and cultures and bends them backwards in on themselves. It moves through us like a sickness. And it's easy to see why that is so. Great example. Take a look at the Ten Commandments. I just finished this foundations class with some folks here at the church walking through the Ten Commandments. And one of the things that came up every single week was that when you break one of the Ten Commandments, you inevitably have to break other ones to get there. So, for example, you shall not commit adultery. Well, in order to commit adultery, you have to lie to your spouse. You also have to break the final commandment, don't covet your neighbor's wife. So you don't just break one, you break multiple commandments. What about thou shalt not steal? Well, in order to steal, you have to covet. So again, you've broken the ninth commandment. You also have to lie uh, in order to get out of it, uh, unless you turn yourself in immediately after walking out of the 7-Eleven with a pack of gum or whatever it might be. And then you also have to commit idolatry because in a sense, the thing that you have taken has become so important to you that you have set aside God and his commandments in order to pursue it. They're all interconnected. We never sin in isolation. Sin never stays where it's put. It always spreads. And so we find this in our own condition. It's not just that we make bad choices. It's not just that we make sinful choices, but rather every single part of our humanity has been corrupted by sin. It's our bodies, it's our minds, it's our souls, our desires. Sin has worked its way through every single part of us. And we understand how this works in the natural world. We understand how corruption spreads. The the first real job I got out of high school was working at Chick-fil-A. And and I've got to give Chick-fil-A some credit. Um, They do not sort of like pre-cook their food and then just freeze it and reheat it in the kitchen. That chicken sandwich that you won't be able to get for lunch today because they're closed on Sundays Uh, was raw chicken probably 20 to 30 minutes before you ordered it. And so somebody takes the raw chicken, they defrost it every morning, it's battered, it's dropped into a fryer, and then it's served. When I worked at Chick-fil-A, I was put in charge of breading and cooking the raw chicken. 
Now, here's something you need to know about me that I didn't know back then. I, I have been diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder in the last six months, which should surprise nobody who has known me for more than 10 minutes. But I didn't know it at the time. And so, let's go, go through a thought experiment here. Imagine 18-year-old, undiagnosed OCD Travis sitting in his uh, orientation class for Chick-fil-A and watching the video in which they say, and I'm paraphrasing here, failure to properly handle raw chicken could result in the sickness or death of our customers. Now think of what that does to me. And as bad as you think it is, it was infinitely worse, right? Because I would be put, in, and for some reason they never let me drop the fries, they never let me clean the kitchen, they never let me say thank you, my pleasure. Like I didn't get to do any of that. It was raw chicken all the time. And so, so I would be at work at Chick-fil-A, and I would be breading the chicken. I've got my gloves on, but obviously the chicken juice sort of gets under the gloves, not to be gross. So I would go, and I would drop the chicken into the fryer. And then I would go to wash my hands, and I would take my gloves off, turn on the sink, wash my hands, turn off the sink, dry my hands. But then I would remember the hand that I turned this sink on with was kind of contaminated with raw chicken juice because some of it had gotten under my glove. So even though I washed my hands, when I turned the sink off, my hand became dirty again. And failure to properly handle raw chicken can result in the sickness or death of some of our customers, right? And so I would turn the faucet back on, I would wash my hands, then I would pump a bunch of soap into my hand, and I would wash the handle of the faucet with the soap. And then uh, I would turn it off, and then I would be ready, right? I, I can go take the chicken out, and I would turn around, and my hand would bump the breading table. And I would go right back to the sink, and I would repeat that process. And I would repeat it over and over and over again. In essence, Chick-fil-A paid me to maintain my own personal hygiene. <laughs> because I would get caught in this feedback loop at, at the sink. And they'd be like, where's the chicken? And I'm like, failure to properly handle Raw chicken can result in the sickness or death of our customers. And I would wash my hands for hours. Over, I would go home with my hands cracked and bleeding from washing them over and over and over again at Chick-fil-A. And I would also go home waiting for them to call me and say, the police want to speak with you because you failed to handle chicken properly. <laughs> but it was, it was, it was not, a, not a great experience. Not because there was anything wrong with them, but because I was dealing with obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's an extreme story. But the, um, the point here is not untrue, even if my approach was a little bit distorted. We understand that when something is clean and it's touched by something that is dirty, the thing that was clean becomes contaminated. This is why doctors wash their hands and before they walk into operating rooms, they do this, right? So they won't touch anything. So they won't contaminate the hands that are clean. That's the way our world works. But it's not the way things work in the Gospels. Because you see, Jesus is constantly reaching out his hand and making contact with people who are unclean. Places his hand on the shoulder of a leper. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't develop leprosy. The leper is made clean. Think of Jesus' encounter with a woman with a blood disorder. There's a crowd of people pressing up against Jesus, and she's had this bleeding disorder for a number of years. And according to the Old Testament law that Hebrews talks about, she would have been perpetually, ritually unclean because of this disorder. And she stretches out her hand, and she grabs Jesus' robe. And immediately, rather than Jesus being made unclean, the blood disorder leaves her. She is made whole. 
It's as if sickness and corruption and decay cannot stand to be in the presence of the Son of God. But our problem goes deeper than physical sickness, physical corruption. Sin has corrupted everything about us. It has corrupted our very nature. So how does Jesus make contact with our nature? He does that when he becomes flesh to dwell among us. And in making contact with our human nature, he begins to drive out the corruption of sin. In the power of the Holy Spirit, without ceasing to be what he is, the eternal Son of God takes on the fullness of human nature. He takes on every part of our humanity. Gregory of Nazianzus, the great Cappadocian father, says, whatever he has not assumed, he has not healed. And he has assumed everything about what it means to be human. He has taken for himself a body, a mind, a soul, a will, all of it. And in making contact with it, he sanctifies it. As the eternal word is made flesh, he begins to drive out the corruption in human nature. Earlier this week, uh, my wife and I were at a Bible study we're hosting for our church plant. We were talking about why it's so important that Jesus took on our full humanity. And one of the people at the Bible study mentioned this term solidarity, that, that Jesus has entered into the human condition. He's entered into solidarity with us. And that happens in the manger. So maybe you're here this morning and you struggle to believe that God is really for you, that God really cares about you, that God could possibly be bothered with whatever it is you're going through. That manger that we sing about is the surest evidence that God cares for you. Because he stepped down from heaven into our lowly estate and has become like us by entering into our suffering. And yet we know this. Jesus doesn't stay a baby. He continues to grow. And he passes through every single stage of human life and in so doing, sanctifies it. Jesus begins as a fetus. He passes through all the stages of human development. He enters into a family Joseph's not his biological father, but he is his earthly father in terms of the structure of his family. And in so doing, Jesus gives dignity to childhood. Jesus takes a job, the vocation of his father, and in so doing, when he steps into work, he gives work dignity. He sanctifies it. Jesus was never married, but Paul tells us that the church is his bride. And so in taking the church for his bride, Jesus sanctifies and gives dignity to marriage, which is why we can point to Christ's love for the church as an example of what human marriage should be. Jesus calls 12 apostles to himself, and he says, you are my friends. And he gives dignity to friendship. He sanctifies it. He passes through everything that it means to be human and drives out the corruption of sin until finally, having lived a sinless life, he makes contact with death on the cross. If you reflect on the passage I read earlier, Hebrews 10, you'll remember it begins with, Animal sacrifices you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, right? This is a reference to the incarnation. But then when you get to the end of that passage, verse 10, it says this, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
I asked this question at the beginning of our time together. Why did God have to become a man in order to save us? The first answer is he needed to take on the fullness of our nature to redeem it. But the other answer to that question that is equally as important is God had to become a man so that he could die. You see, even though our sin has human victims, even though we sin against people, everything that is belongs to and was created by God. And so ultimately, every sin that we commit, we commit against God himself. Which means that only God can forgive sin. And yet, what the Bible tells us is that there is a price for sin. Paul says the wages of sin is death. And so this is the conundrum. This is the wound at the heart of the human condition. Only God can forgive sin. The price for sin is death. And only human beings can die. And so what is the answer? The answer is the word became flesh. Away in a manger. So that in Jesus, God accomplishes salvation from both sides. God alone forgives sin. Only a human being can suffer and die. And so God becomes man. And he does it all beginning to end so that we have nothing to boast about. After he's taken on flesh, driven out corruption, he finally makes contact with death on the cross. And for all of human history, this works in one way. When someone makes contact with death, that's the end. Like the corruption of sickness, clean things become sick. Sick things don't become clean. Dead things stay dead. They don't come back to life. But there is one exception. When Jesus makes contact with death, it begins to work backwards. Rather than death consuming Christ, Christ consumes death. The great church father, John Chrysostom, preached a sermon on Easter Sunday. I'll tell you, John Chrysostom is a strong contender for the next name of my cat. And he says this, let no one fear death, for the death of our Savior, Jesus, has set us free. He has destroyed it by enduring it. He has destroyed hell when he descended into it. Hell took a body and discovered God. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what it saw and was overcome by what it did not see. O death, where is your sting? O hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you, O death, are annihilated. Jesus destroys it by entering into it. And he drives it out from everyone who's united to him by faith, just like he does leprosy in the wilderness. And so that brings us back to that song that we began by reflecting on Away in a Manger. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus laid down his sweet head. And perhaps when you hear that song, you think of that precious moments image. And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. That's a great place to start. But I want to suggest to you another image that ought to come to your mind as you reflect on the manger. I'll go ahead and put it on the screen for us now. So this is an image that was produced by uh, a friend of ours um, for our church plant. Uh, he's a Greek Orthodox Christian, and this is an icon. Now, if you've never heard of icons before, they're ancient. It's an ancient form of Christian art. It's all two-dimensional, and it's meant to be used as a teaching tool. It's not meant to perfectly capture proportions and reality, but it's meant to be used to teach the theological truths behind the event that it represents. So, uh, you can't tell from an initial glance, but if you were to sort of outline everything in this scene, 
uh, the shape of the wise men, the angels, and the cave in which Jesus is born, it spells Jesus' name in the Greek. Uh, You'll notice that there's a donkey and an ox at the tomb or at the cradle. Uh, And this is meant to symbolize the Jews and the Gentiles coming together uh, to uh, behold Christ. You'll notice there's three angels which represent the Trinity. You'll notice that Joseph looks troubled, right? Because he was troubled initially when Mary announced that she was pregnant, but he still has the glow around his head because nonetheless he is a saint. He was faithful to God in spite of the fact that he was troubled. I, I could go on for hours about this image, but I want you to pay attention to Jesus and to the manger, what's at the center. Because you'll notice that Jesus doesn't look like the precious moments Jesus. His swaddling clothes definitely don't look like anything I've bought for my son in the last two months. And that's because they're not meant to look like normal human swaddling clothes. They're meant to look like grave clothes. They're meant to look like what a body would have been wrapped in in the ancient world. You'll notice that that manger doesn't have any hay in it. It doesn't look anything like a manger that you might see in a nativity scene. Because it's meant to look like a tomb. This is the point that this image makes, and you can go through church history, search nativity icon, and Jesus again and again is depicted in this way. Why? Because this child who entered into the world and was placed in a manger was born to die for the sins of the world. For this reason did he come into the world, to drive out sin, to bear our punishment, to die on our behalf. Maybe this is the first Christmas for you that you've spent without somebody that you love. Maybe it's your first Christmas without your mom. It's your first Christmas without your dad. It's your first Christmas without your husband, your wife, your son, your daughter. And as you drive down the street and you see all these nativity scenes of families gathered together, it's a reminder for you of how death has separated your own family. But here's what I want to encourage you with. I want, to, I want to encourage you to see something different in that nativity scene, in the holy family gathered around the manger. I want you to see that this child in the manger is the beginning of God's plan to destroy death itself. It's the beginning of God's plan to drive out death once and for all. The Son of God takes on flesh to redeem our nature, to suffer the penalty that we deserve. And that begins away in a manger where he lays down his head. But make no mistake, that manger, like the rest of Jesus' life, is lived in the shadow of the cross and ultimately in light of his resurrection victory over death. That's worth celebrating. That's worth singing about. That's worth reflecting on. And so I want to invite you to stand And let's sing the words of Away in a Manger one more time in light of what we've considered today. Father, as we reflect on the words of this song uh, that 
your son Jesus lay his head in a manger, we can't help but reflect on the fact that he gave up his spirit on the cross and with that he bowed his head and breathed his last. Oh Lord, as we reflect on the birth of Christ, draw our minds to his death and his resurrection and his return. Make us a people who are shaped by these truths. God, make us a people who are bold to declare these truths to our friends who don't yet know you. God, we ask that your spirit would fill our lives and turn our hearts towards Jesus in this season. We ask all this in the name of Christ our Lord. And we say amen. Amen, Baylife. We'll see you for Christmas Eve services. Go in peace.